The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. You have a creative idea. You feel inspired to pursue it, but your head is filled with doubt. What if I can't make it work? What if no one wants to buy this book? What if I can't provide for my family. Now, what if my work isn't good enough? Have you struggled with any of these questions? What if people think my creation, my writing is stupid? Well, we have a guest on the show today who's going to help you overcome some of those roadblocks and encourage you to pursue your creative dreams. He is an author, a speaker, a digital shepherd, and he helps Christian authors, artists, and entrepreneurs transform their ideas into online publications, courses, and digital products. His passion to help creatives recognize their work and share it with the world is evident for anyone who knows him in his newest book, Faithful Creative. He shares uh, how Christian authors can take the first steps to transform their God-given ideas to impact the kingdom. So David Lee Martin, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. It's great to be with you again, Thomas. It really is. So why are creativity and fear so connected? Well, I think to to me, certainly what I've witnessed both in myself, I find that the man in the mirror is usually the best person to look at when you when you begin to kind of dig a bit deeper under the uh, surface. And certainly for me, I think that when we begin to express our creativity and put ourselves out to the world, uh, uh, creativity tends to be very much attached to the heart. You know, where, where Jesus uh, speaks or, or where the scriptures speak about the issues of life flow from the heart. You know, we can do certain jobs where we're quite disconnected from the outcome. It's like I do the work, I get paid, thank you very much, and then I go home. But when we're producing creative work, it generally is attached to something deeper within us. And I think that that can kind of stir up a lot of questions or insecurities that often we as creatives can can wrestle with. And where do those insecurities come from? I think oftentimes it's a fear of whether we will be received or rejected oftentimes. And again, it's it's that thing of where we can attach so much of ourselves to the work that we produce that if someone doesn't accept and embrace what we create, it's not just, oh, they didn't like my book or they didn't really get me on that podcast. It's very much like they didn't get me. They rejected me. You know, that, 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 the, the whole kind of angst of the artistic life. And, and sometimes I think one of the things that, um, uh, certainly looking to do in encouraging uh, Christian creatives in particular, although it's anyone with with a kind of creative idea that's burning in their belly. But one of the things that I'm looking to do through kind of my training work and my teaching is to help people get over those roadblocks that stand between them having an idea on the inside and actually crystallizing it into something that can benefit other people. And that bridge from kind of the invisible to the visible is, as you say, can sometimes be treacherous um, for our emotions, particularly when we're first starting out, because there are so, because we are so attached potentially to the work. I think that attachment is really key, and we're a lot of us when we first get started. You're right in that we identify right. Somebody's not rejecting my book; they're rejecting me. And I think a lot of that comes from kind of selfish motives for writing. I think different people start writing for different reasons, but a common reason I see amongst authors is they they feel insignificant. They feel like they're uh, not making much of a difference in the world, and uh, they're not known. They're not appreciated. Uh, and often it's, it's they're not known at home, right? My husband doesn't appreciate me. My children don't respect me. So I'm going to write a book and then my husband will appreciate me and my children will respect me. And that 
is a really toxic motivation because it's not going to work. Your husband is not going to respect you once you publish a book and your children aren't going to respect you once you publish a book. The book's not going to change it. Uh, in fact, in some ways it's going to make it worse because the, the um, they may resent all of the time and effort that you're putting into writing your book, right? If they're not on your team, uh, success isn't going to get them on your team. <laughs> it may only make things worse. And But on the flip side, if your motivation is one of service, where there's a group of people that you want to serve, you want to bless them, you see that they're in pain, you see that they are in need of something that you can provide, and you're approaching it because you're wanting to bless them, rejection becomes way less painful, right? It's like you're you running a taco stand on the side of the road. Somebody drives by, they don't buy tacos. You don't take it as a personal rejection. You're like, oh, well, that person's probably just not hungry for tacos right now, right? It's like it's a way um, safer way psychologically to approach the world rather than like, this is me. Please don't reject me <laughs> because then every every rejection feels like a slap in the face. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you say about it being that the, like the writing of a book, the publishing of a book is an act of service. That's really how I see it. Whether that's fiction books serving a kind of hungry market, a hungry audience for those kinds of stories, whatever whatever subgenre or genre you're writing for, and certainly for nonfiction books where we largely, I, I think nonfiction is looking to solve a problem, <laughs> to answer a question, to scratch an itch that, you know, is uh, incessant until it finds some relief. And, and so writing a book, as you say, is essentially an act of service. And when we, and, and I, I talk about this a lot in the book, is I talk about kind of the triple A guarantee. And the triple A guarantee is, it, it's a bit of a play really, but it's, you know, audience, audience, audience. Find your audience first. Know who it is that you can help. Know who it is your message, your word, your stories will speak to and will bring value to. And then write for your audience. Find your audience, write for your audience. You know, it's not, your book is not written for you. It's not written to service your uh, your ego or anything of that sort is actually written. And, and, you know, as much as some people might kind of be up in arms over and feel as though it's selling out to write to their audience, you know, to write to market, ultimately, and I think it was even you, Thomas, that I heard say this, unless a book is actually read, it really does not fulfill its purpose. <laughs> it's like, it's all good and well. You can have the greatest novel on the planet. But if it doesn't actually land in someone's hands so they can read and enjoy that book, it's kind of underperforming in, a, in quite a radical manner. And then the third A is to reach your audience. You've got to find them first. You've then got to, you've got to write to those that, that those people you got to write in a manner that resonates really powerfully with them and then reaching the audience which is something i know that you're you're a master at kind of helping people do is the whole marketing side of things and as kind of creatives 21st century digital entrepreneurial authors and creatives we have to wear those two hats we can't just always wear the artist hat and come into the marketing space and think that the same way of working and thinking is going to get us the results that we're looking for. We need to swap out that hat and know that there is no, I, I, you know, I, the way I put it is there, there is no sin in selling <laughs> when it's done in an ethical and an authentic way. It really is just bringing value to the table and exchanging value with the reader with, uh, within the marketplace. And as long as we deliver more value than we take in payment, 
everyone is everyone's a winner. It's a win-win on every side. Yeah, in my experience working with authors over the last decade, I found that the authors who don't want to sell out by not writing to their audience, right? They don't want to write for their audience. They just want to write the book that's on their heart. And they don't really care about their reader. They're the same authors who later are wondering why their books are not selling. It's like, well, you didn't want to sell. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't want the books to sell. You wanted to write a book for yourself. And, and maybe, you know, God called you to write a book, not because it was meant to be published, not because you were meant to sell it. If, if he didn't give you a heart to sell it, maybe you're not meant to sell it. Maybe you're writing this book just because he wanted to do a work in your life or teach you some skills that you'll use to help somebody else. And it's not meant for publication. It, it, it's like, yeah. that's a hard word. And some a word some people don't want to hear, but it's like, did God call you to write a book? Did he also call you to sell that book and, and get it out to people? If he didn't, maybe this isn't the book. Maybe you, you need to write another book that's written for an audience, that's written to bless others. And that constraint uh, helps uh, fill the creativity with life, right? A blank page with no instruction is really intimidating, right? Should I draw on this? Should I paint a painting? Should I write a poem? Should I write a story, right? The more constraints you add to it, the more uh, creativity uh, can really thrive and, and it's the constraints that give it focus uh, there's a great scene in apollo 13 where they have these air filters from the module and they have these air filters from the lander and the air filters on the module are round and the lander modules are square and they're like we need to get this air filter to fit into this <laughs> hole with nothing but these materials <laughs> and we have to do it before everyone in apollo 13 dies from carbon monoxide poisoning <laughs> and so all right they're on the clock right and they were and that is really tough constraints right there they're in space there's no way to be like oh here's uh, some extra duct tape right you can't send them that and those constraints led to creativity and they're able to find a problem and the constraint of getting your vision your passion and communicating it for your readers and in a way that will bless and serve your readers will actually make your book a better book and but you have to be willing to die to yourself and actually love your reader as much as you love your book yeah it's it's a humbling thing and but but as you say becoming i mean because ultimately as as writers our role is to communicate we have to take something that's in our heart and find a way to transfer something that is can essentially quite intangible in some ways we have to transfer what's in us into someone else's heart we've got to we've got to find a bridge and the words that we put on the page are really the way i see it are, are a bridge from heart to heart we but we we bring value from within us and we take it across that bridge whether it's a whether it's a digital page or whether it's a print page and we del- we use that to deliver value into the heart of someone else and i think one of the mistakes that a lot of times people make coming into the author space is they write the book then go try find their readers and uh, as often as I'm able, you know, having, having having made all of the mistakes that we so eloquently tell other people not to make now, it's usually because we've made them sometimes several times over, is it's much easier and much less kind of treacherous to find the audience, really actually give thought give consideration and give time to think who are the people I can best serve? Um, who are the people I can best help? Who are the people I can best deliver really outstanding value to? And give give yourself the luxury of not rushing to put the words on the page. Give your Give yourself the the luxury of actually allowing your reader to come into the frame before you actually try and communicate. And in doing so, it just makes your words so much sharper. You know, where the, where the scriptures talk about an, a, a dull axe or a sharp axe and how if the axe is dull, it takes a lot of strength 
to chop down the tree. <laughs> you got you got to put a lot behind it to make it kind of topple that that tree. Whereas if you take the time to sharpen your vision, sharpen your understanding, when the words come onto the page they're going to be much more likely to cut through the noise and actually deliver the goods to the people that you're wanting to to affect because as as authors we want to have an impact yeah you're talking about how writing for an audience makes your words sharper and i witnessed that when i was a freshman in college our school just spent a fortune on a LMS is what they called it, the learning management software. And they were just getting into kind of digitizing the classroom. So it was fir- my freshman year is the first year my university was making an effort to digitize the classroom. And each classroom had a web page and this portal and you could post things for the students. And the uh, administration was putting a lot of pressure on the faculty to start using this new tool. So I remember halfway through my freshman rhetoric and composition class, the professor is like, okay, the next exercise is going to get posted to the LMS for all of the other students to read. So I want you to post your writing, and I want you to read what uh, the essays that all of the other students write for this assignment. And it was done in such a way we weren't able to copy each other. So we each had a slightly different assignment. And so we all went and, and we wrote our essays, and we posted them to the LMS. And I remember him walking into the classroom kind of stunned, and he's like, I don't even know how to grade these papers because they're all – so much better than anything any of you have written up to this point. <laughs> so he gave everybody A's <laughs> because having an audience, knowing that people are actually going to read this and writing it for that audience transformed our writing. And it wasn't the LMS. It wasn't that magically copying and pasting from Word into this, what at the time was a really terrible website. We Everybody ended up hating that LMS. <laughs> it, was, it was early days for the technology but it, so it wasn't the LMS, it was the audience. The audience sharpened our writing and honed it. And if you are not writing for an audience, you don't have that sharpening, you don't have that honing. And so it ends up being a lot more effort and it ends up being a lot scarier to do the writing. Wow, that that's so powerful. And I mean, I found that one for for anyone out there who is maybe at that point where they're thinking, you know, can I really write a book? You know, do I have anything to say? Will I be able to write more than three pages before I run out of kind of my my genius level? You know, um, I've certainly found one of the ways in which, you know, I, I'll often tell people you're, you're only going to really find your voice by using it. Now, sometimes we, we want to wait until something drops out of heaven and then we kind of step into the breach like some superhero. Now, that that may well happen. It's, uh, you know, I, I certainly can't discount that miracles do take place. But um, I have found in practice here on planet Earth, in the trenches, looking to make a difference, looking to make an impact, looking to make an income, that we find our voice actually by using it, putting ourselves out there with in the beauty of imperfection. And one of the ways that I have really honed my voice on the on the page in my publications, has been just exercising myself with blogging. I know that you've done uh, a lot of blogging, Thomas, and I've, I've even wa- I've watched some of your training on blogging and, and and things. And really, blogging is such a an incredibly powerful way to begin to discover that that unique voice, and it is such an immediate way to communicate with an audience that sometimes I find I, I will write a blog post and there's a, a rawness and a kind of a, a directness to it. And again, it's exactly like you're saying, it's because you are writing to an immediate audience. And so that immediacy and that rawness comes through. And yet then, so, and I have to remind myself and and I actually really enjoy that. I, I that's part of my, I, I guess part of my voice. I I enjoy that kind of immediacy. And and uh, I have to remind myself when I sit down to write a book, to 
kind of retain that sense of like really talking directly with the people that I'm engaged with. Because sometimes we can like, we sit down at the desk. I mean, I say we, I, I mean, I can only talk for myself, but we sit down at our desk and we, we put on our literary hat and we think, now I shall write a book. And like at that, at that very point, it's like all of the creative cogs come to a grinding halt <laughs> because instead of just simply coming and thinking, I'm going to help and bless and benefit another human being with my experience, with my history, with the things that God has placed in me and, and just allow that flow that flow from the inside to spill onto the page um, and, and say it's really uh, if if people are struggling with the idea of writing a book and stuff, sometimes I, I certainly blogging really has helped me to discover and unlock some of the things that now kind of play very powerfully into the books that I write. When I was in high school, I was in choir for the whole time of high school and my choir director was really good. And a lot of what she was doing as a high school choir director was helping young people learn to find their voice, right? Learning how to sing well. And you'd be surprised how little of the time in our practices were spent singing the music <laughs> compared to warmups. We'd have an hour long practice and we might spend the first 20 minutes of the practice doing vocal exercises, right? Where we'd start low and then we'd get a little bit higher and then we'd get a little bit higher. And, and then it was like, okay, you know, sing laws, right? And learn how to open up your voice. And then now sing minis, mini, 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 and uh, learn how to focus and find your resonance. <laughs> and this was not fun to listen to, right? Hearing a bunch of high school students singing scales is not fun to listen to, but it is the way to get better at singing <laughs> because once you find your resonance, once you find your voice, once you learn how to open up the vocal passages uh, of your body, which you do through these warm-ups, you do through these practices, it's the same as if you get one-on-one -on -one music coaching. You sing the same things, you just don't have any friends with you doing the exercises. That's where you find your power because learning how to sing is it's it's about learning how to hit the right notes, but really it's about learning how to sing loudly without straining your vocal cords, how to get out of your own way. And once you find your power, one person can sing against a whole orchestra without amplification, and everyone can hear both the singer and the orchestra. Right? That, that's the goal uh, to get you to that to that level of strength. And uh, and one person can sing against a choir. There's some interesting uh, scientific reasons for why that is possible as well. Uh, but that practicing those those drills uh, is really important. It's the same in sports. When I was in swim team, we'd spend almost a whole practice swimming at drills where we just swim with our left arm or just kick to build our kicking and blogging or short story writing. So blogging for nonfiction, short story writing for fiction. It can be if you do it with intention and if you do it with some training wrapped around you. It's like, oh, I'm uh, writing a blog and I'm learning about search engine optimization today. I've watched some videos on how Google works. So I'm going to work today specifically to write this blog to rank well on Google. And you do it as a drill, right? And it helps you with your writing overall. It helps focus your writing. Or let's say you're writing a short story. And like today, I'm going to really work on uh, character voices. I want the character voices to sound really different from each other. I don't want them to sound like different versions of me. I want them to sound like their own person. And my brother did this. He wrote a whole short story from the point of view of a robot, a sentient AI just to force him to write in a different character voice, right? Something really different than what he normally did. Or I'm going to write a short story from a female POV when all my other books are from a male point of view or, or vice versa. And that, that deliberate practice, that deliberate um, stretching of the muscles and, and finding of the voice is so much more useful than writing yet another chapter of your novel. And a lot of people jump right yeah. in. And like you said, and they're like, I'm going to write a book. And they haven't been faithful in the little things. They they haven't written a single blog post. They haven't written a single short story. And if you'd be willing to put the book on pause, read some books on craft, and write some short stories implementing those books on craft that you're reading, you are going to get so much better so fast, so much faster. And it's actually the better path 
to writing a best-selling book than just sitting down and writing a book. Yeah, we we don't have it. Um, we don't have access to it yet here in the UK. But um, the the whole Kindle Vela um, thing sounds really interesting. Just thinking of kind of that opportunity to write short, you know, to not have to write. 300 pages or 600 pages, but actually be able to serialize something in a manner that can and will reach an audience and that will get you paid. I just think it's something, I mean, certainly when it comes over here, it will definitely be something that I'll be kind of experimenting with myself. Well, you can do it now with one of Kindle Vela's many competitors. So there's Wattpad, which I believe is available in the UK and about a dozen others. So Kindle Vela acts like it's this new kid on the block and they're inventing this brand new technology. But there are platforms that have millions of users that are actually more popular than Kindle Vela currently that are also more international. So don't don't feel restricted by Amazon. There's nothing keeping you from writing serialized fiction, uh, but it is a skill. Uh, I, a lot of people jump into Kindle Vela and they think they can just drop a chapter a week, but it, that doesn't work because the kind of writing that makes for a good serialized story is very different than the kind of writing that makes for a good novel. It's the difference between a TV show and a movie. Uh, the TV show has to have each episode be satisfying. It, uh, and if the episodes are connected, it needs to end each episode with a reason to keep watching, right? A, an unanswered question, a cliffhanger, a, a level of suspense. And so the whole style of writing is very different uh, for serialized fiction. So it's not a silver bullet to making money. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, if I could just get on Kindle Vela, the money will come. no. There's not very many people making money on Kindle Vela right now, but learning to write short form and getting that feedback sooner can be really helpful in getting better at writing. Yeah, certainly the fiction side of our business here um, has been built on short books. 10,000 10, words. That, that, like for, for, for the longest time, when I first got started in fiction, we were um, putting out books that were certainly no more than 10 or 11,000 words. And and that's a very reachable goal I find. I I think and and it made it it made it possible for us to you know and and I guess it it differs from genre to genre but I think short form um fiction is definitely a great deal more accepted and well received now than maybe it once was just because the way people consume things has changed so much. Um, and and th- those short stories, I mean, we've really built out an entire fiction publishing business off the back of these very, very simple stories in specific subgenres. Short stories have always been popular, right? Comic books are short stories. There's anthologies of short stories, but they go in and out of popularity, as does serialized fiction. Right? Charles Dickens was writing serialized fiction. You'd get the Sunday newspaper and have the next installment of Oliver Twist in it, right? It's why Dickens' books go on for so long, because the newspapers were paying him by the word. (laughs) So if he could say it in three words rather than (laughs) one, he would say it in three words rather than one. Uh, So we talked about uh, knowing your audience and loving your audience and how that can help hone our creativity. But as Christians, that's not the only... um, thing to think about because we also have the Holy Spirit who partners with us in our creativity. I know this is something that you're really passionate about. So so we've talked about the loving your neighbor part and how loving your neighbor helps your creativity. Now let's talking about let's talk about loving the Lord your God and how that impacts your creativity. So what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the creative process? Yeah, I, I mean for me the the whole basis I talk about something called the five stone framework. Okay. So it's it's and really, it's it's based on this idea of oftentimes as creatives, like when we very first started this conversation, Thomas, you said, you know, what is it? Why is creativity so coupled often with fear, you know, and trepidation that people come and, and it touches on deep things in us? And um, I've asked the same questions, you know, that the, the, I call them the terrible twins, you know, perfectionism and procrastination are like the, the, the terrible twins that hamper so many of our um, best aspirations. 
and uh, and I saw them very much like the giants that come and try and back us back into the crowd. So we end up back in the kind of line of soldiers with their knees knocking while, you know, and not really stepping onto the battlefield and taking action. And uh, as we know, David went down to the river. He found five smooth stones. Now, my understanding is that there was Goliath, but the Bible speaks about four other ugly brothers that Goliath had. So I'm guessing that David figured, look, if I if I get Goliath, maybe his brothers will step out. <laughs> so I'd better be prepared. But um, off the back of that, I, I started to, I've been working with creative Christians for a long time, even through when we were pastoring, we used to um, develop conference openings and work with dance teams. And I, I would do a lot of painting and art and writing and poetry and things like that. And over the years, I've seen that um, that five things really are essential to move us into a place where we can effectively partner with the Holy Spirit. The first of those things, what I would call the first stone is faith. That, you know, if we're coming into the marketplace as a kingdom writer, a kingdompreneur, if you like, we the, the basis is Jesus first and everything else follows. Seek first the kingdom. All these things will be added to you. There's so much pressure to kind of either sell out or buy in to a new a number of different things. But God really does have the best plan. You know, and if we will choose to build on that foundation of faith, it provides us with something solid that will not just be a flash in the pan, but can potentially lead us into a a lifestyle business. You know, and so there's faith is first and then inspiration. And the inspiration stone is really this. Um, As you know, the word inspiration literally means God breathed that, you know, and and the truth that the reality that the Holy Spirit, the creator himself, both is with us and in us is such a tremendous reality. And instead of consigning the Holy Spirit to the the religious, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, you know, the religious aspects of our life. And then we sit down to create our online course or write our book or develop our website or whatever else it may be. It's actually he wants to partner in every aspect of our life. Uh, the, the, The Holy Spirit spoke to me Quite a number of years ago, I was juggling a lot of different creative things, um, as as we do. And but he said to me, he said, David, it's he said, quit hustling and start hearing. Quit hustling and start hearing. And I honestly believe both from uh, just both from the what we read in the pages of scripture. And from experience and seeing others who are uh, kind of men and women of God who are walking in that type of revelation is that Jesus will partner with you in your creative endeavors if you will invite him in. The Holy Spirit is your helper, not just to help you sing well on Sunday morning, okay? <laughs> you know, it's a, the scope of it is far greater than that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just such a key element is actually being very intentionally inviting the Holy Spirit and, and allowing him to speak. I mean, I, I remember uh, uh, some time ago asking the Holy Spirit, what do, what do I need to do next? you know, to kind of uh, move my creative wheels forward. And funnily enough, I mean, most of the time, as I say, we come to him and we ask a question and he turned the question right back around on me. And he said, David, you tell me, what do you need to do next? 
And I wrote down five things, and I, I don't need, necessarily need to share those five things now. But he gave me, but I, well, I gave him five specific things. It was like, Holy Ghost, I need to do this, 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 and this. And it's surprising when we begin to enter in rather than a, a kind of monologue where we just rehearse our requests to him and come into a place where we begin to develop a dialogue with the Holy Spirit, that conversation begins to go two ways. And it builds not just a trust in his faithfulness to lead us into kind of walking and fulfilling his purpose, but it also develops a a, a much more um, clear understanding of who we are. And we begin to trust ourselves a great deal more. Um, and, and, the, and as I say, the partnership is two way. I mean, obviously, we know who the senior partner is in all of this <laughs> and always will be, thank God. But it's, it's just such a beautiful thing, how the, the deepening of that. There's a, there's a scripture in the Amplified Bible that says he's invited us into companionship and participation companionship being that friendship but participation being that partnership he's there for us in our personal lives but he's also there to partner with us in our work lives our creative lives in what we are putting out to the world this reminds me of adam in the garden so the very first thing that Adam did, God tells him, you know, here are the trees you can eat. Uh, Here's the tree not to eat. So he gives him that first commandment. And then God brings uh, the animals to Adam to see what Adam will name the animals, right? This wasn't a quiz. It's like God has secretly already given an animal, a name to the animal. He's like, what is this animal called? You know, do you know the right answer? It's like, no, Adam was the one who was naming the animals. There's almost a sense of like curiosity of like God has this new creature and he wants to see what is Adam going to name the animals. And and God is right there with Adam as he's naming the animals, right? It's this thing that they're doing together, but Adam is doing the work, right? He was ca- called to work the garden and his first job was to name the animals, right? So then he could, you know, keep them straight. And it was an act of creativity. I and, mean, you know, do you think that your writing is hard? Try naming the second 500 animals. <laughs> the first 500 might be easy. There's a lot of animals in name. All right, that's a lot of work. And, you know, none of them were found suitable. So he spent a lot of time, presumably, uh, naming the animals. Those early chapters of Genesis that you're referring to are so, so rich with things that we can learn. You know, we're talking about the creative nature Um you know, as as we know, here we find God introduces himself. You know, I often, th- I like the way I picture it is like when you walk into a party or some kind of social gathering, and when you first, when you meet someone for the first time, you usually put your hand out, shake their hand. First question you ask is, you know, what's your name? And then usually the second question, certainly us guys anyway, so I'm not, I'm not sure, I think women may be a bit more, kind of imaginative in the way they approach these things. But it's usually like, what's your name? What do you do? You know, that's, that's, that seems to be the, the flow. And right there in the very first few words, within five words, you know, we come and we, and God says, hey, my name's God. In the beginning, God. Oh, so what do you do? In the beginning, God created. I'm God. I make things. I create things. That's that's who I am, and this is what I do. And then that that chapter, that first chapter of Genesis, then outlines how he takes something that exists only in his heart. It's in it's invisible, it's intangible, and then brings it into being, makes something out of nothing. Now, th- human beings have been in. in uh, have been instilled with that same power to take something that doesn't exist and make it become. It's, it's quite phenomenal, really. But one of the things that I love so much about that, that the first chapter of Genesis there is you also see that God punctuates 
his creative work with, wow, that's so good. He says he made this and then it says, and it was good and it was good. And it like it builds it like it was good. It was good. And then it ends with, man, it was very good. And that, you know, like we were talking about the five stones, that the five stone framework is really faith, inspiration, education. So we know what we want to do. We can learn how to do it. There's no excuse for us not knowing how to do something because we can't, we're all been given the privilege to grow and to become. And then, of course, application. And I should just to jump in real quick. This podcast is free. Like if you're needing education, we have a hundred episodes in our back catalog that you can listen to covering all manner of topics to help you become a better writer. This is a really great time to learn easily, right? You don't have to buy an ancient scroll and go to the library uh, and let, you know, let the monk there who wrote the scroll, let you read it on how to write better. Right? The education is you have more access now than perhaps ever before to education. All right. Keep going. So you have faith, inspiration, education. What's the fourth uh, smooth stone? Yeah, exactly. Because at, at each of these points, People can kind of stumble because they can say they can feel inspired and they can say, oh, man, I want to write a book. But then they can they're, they're faced with, but I don't know how. And so you really do have to pull the next stone out of the bag and say, hey, I'm not going to let that giant stop me. I'm going to learn how. And, and, you know, as you said, there are so many resources available to us now like never before. And, it, and and we don't have to go through kind of some long-winded uh, avenue to begin to upskill. And then it's, but it's not just what we know. We can learn how, but it's not just what we know that really makes the difference. It's what we do with what we know. So the fourth stone is application. You know, like an ounce of application is worth a ton of education, <laughs> you know, it's like ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth, I think is, is like, is an epidemic really, you know, people just consuming and consuming and consuming and, and never really then taking what they've learned and putting it into action. And then that final stone is, um, as I alluded to in Genesis, there is celebration, actually acknowledging what you have created and recognizing it as good, being being open and willing and humble enough in the right sense of the word to say, wow, this is really good. This really does deliver value. This is worth me. And, and I'm sure you will uh, have something to say about this. This is worth me selling. <laughs> This is worth me putting it out to the world and putting some energy behind actually getting it into the hands of readers and actually marketing this and that marketing being as much an act of service as actually writing the book. Because a worker is worthy of his hire. <laughs> and that's true for a tent maker, somebody who's making a tent for other people to live in, right, taking dead animal skins and stitching them together to make a tent. Uh, and it's also true for a, a church worker, for a pastor or for a missionary. And you don't have to take it from me because this is literally what Paul said when talking about this. And the, jo the other job that Paul had was making tents, right? You're worthy of getting paid both for the church work and for the tent work. And what's interesting about writing is that it could be both, right? You could, the, the writing could be church work. Right. Or which and you're worthy to get paid for church work or it could be tent making. Right, Just you're writing a book on how to file your taxes. Right. It's like, hey, what's the Christian way to file your taxes? Well, honestly. Right. But there's no like special tricks <laughs> that um, as Christians you should be taking advantage of. Right. We're all following the same laws, but it, it's you can still get paid for that. Right. It's uh, they're both worthy yeah. of getting paid. And if you are saying, oh, well, this is righteous work and I don't want to collect for, collect money for it, you are dishonoring every pastor who's ever taken a paycheck because you're saying you're more righteous than those people because you're not getting paid. And that is a really arrogant thing. 
um, or it can be a, a really arrogant place to put your head. It's like, I'm so righteous. I'm not going to collect money for my work. It's like, let people yeah. bless you. You blessing them, they bless you. That's how the body works. We're blessing each other. Uh, don't set yourself above everybody else. Yeah, opening up the – one of the things that really opened up the kind of – because I came out of pastoring. I was a pastor and church planter for 20-plus years and, and, and really had no – experience of business whatsoever. I mean, to be honest, money was a conversation that I didn't really feel comfortable with. And so that that lack of business acumen and that reluctance to engage in business, although I said to myself, well, I just don't want to dilute my ministry. I just want to focus on, you know, the pastoring side of things and um, and I felt as though it would divert me if I began to venture into business as well. I so wish I had now, because I, I I could certainly have accomplished a great deal more if I'm honest. If I if I'd kind of broadened my perspective of kingdom and not kept it so kind of um, boxed in in my thinking. Um, but one of the things that when when we stepped out of pastoring and began to enter into kind of the more creative business side of things, um, that conversation was one that I still wrestled with until I realized that really all the, the whole money conversation simply comes down to an exchange of value. It's just an exchange of value. And if you, you if you are bringing value to the table, you are with totally it's it's that the right thing to do is to allow that exchange to take place because that is how the kingdom works it's 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 not just i give and 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 i give because without receiving we very rapidly move out of a place of grace where we have an where we have a, an overflow and an abundance to continue to give and continue to offer service to the world. If you want to breathe out, you have to also breathe in. It's a rhythm. <laughs> and you can't say, oh, breathing out is more beneficial than breathing in. They both do beneficial things for the body, right? You need to expel the carbon dioxide as much as you need to bring in the oxygen. Like those are both critical things for the body. And so giving and receiving are both really important. And there's a, a saying here in Texas, if you're trying to help somebody and uh, in, in, in church culture and they're not wanting you to help them, it's like, don't steal my blessing. Let me bless you because in blessing you, I also get blessed, right? Don't, don't insist on not needing my help. And it can be a, a great way of, of disarming somebody. <laughs> but uh, we're almost out of time. But before we go, I, I do want to talk briefly about your book, Faithful Creative. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book and where people can get it because it's not available on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Th thanks, Thomas. Yeah, I've um, this is the most recent book that I've written um, called Faithful Creative. It was really written out of a um, a heart to help and encourage Christians, whether they're like artists, authors, um, early stage entrepreneurs, to step out of that kind of procrastination, perfectionism dance and really um, to encourage and embolden and equip them to step into the, their, their field of favor and begin to share their worth and their work with the world. And so the book really talks about much of what we've been talking about tonight, that like rooting it rooted in our creative identity as children of God. And then from that, looking to then equip the saints for their work of ministry, whether the, and, and by work of ministry, I mean, God is a kingdom builder, not just a church builder. We can, we can serve the, we can serve the world writing recipe books. If that is where we're gifted, we can serve the world helping people market their books. If that's where we're gifted, et cetera, et cetera. And so it really looks to just lift the lid on all of that and just kind of inject some of that Holy Ghost fire into people's creative ideas and then help them to 
know how they might go about realizing those ideas so they can really bless and help and benefit other people. Um, the book is presently available if you go to faithfulcreativebook.com. That will take you to where you can pick up a copy. And and as as I've already said, I'm I'm like I'm gonna do what I preach. It's a great book. It's good. It's good. <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, real quick before we go, do you have any final tips or encouragement? I would say the biggest tip I can give is to. Uh, as as someone looking to bring value to the world and share your worth is look in every way to build creative habits into your routines. You know, those small mini habits of actually just taking time and giving yourself the privilege of creating something every day really stacks up very, very quickly over time. It's amazing what 500 words a day stacks up to very, very rapidly, rather than waiting for some bolt of inspiration in the old sense, in the worldly sense of the word, to kind of kick you into gear. You'll be amazed at what's on on the inside of you if you will just allow it to come out and actually carve out habits to help that happen. Well said. Well said. Your days make your life and your hours make your days. So those habits are so critical. Uh, Our sponsor today is the five-year plan to become a best-selling author. I crafted this plan with best-selling and now uh, Hall of Fame author James L. Rubart, and it's a step-by-step guide to guide you through the first five years of your writing career. Each quarter, you learn what to do and what you don't need to do yet, so it helps you know what to focus on. And what I talked about earlier on in this episode about writing short stories and reading books on craft That is a key part of this plan. We will give you the books to read and the short stories to write that will help you get better faster. You can learn more at authormedia.com slash courses. David Lee Martin, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.